Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until you make, till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for your word, and we thank you that that is true. And we confess it to be true, and we praise you that it is true that you have made this Jesus, whom we know, both Lord and Messiah. I pray now that you would be with Pastor Patrick as he preaches faithfully from your text what it is that we need to hear from Peter's sermon. And I pray that you would give us attentive hearts and minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's the third time. You get to say good morning three times on a Sunday, don't you? Have you ever counted? And have you ever counted how many times we pray, too? It's fun. I love doing those little intricacies. A little insight into being a pastor or a preacher. When you get up here and teach, there is something riding in the back of your mind. If you're a good pastor or a faithful pastor, a faithful teacher, that you're not going to preach anything new or unique. All right? So that should be in the back of your mind. Now, that goes a little countercultural in our day and age. We want to be new. We want to be unique. We want to stand out. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, there should be nothing new. It should be something that's been repeated again and again and again. And there's something special about that. And so there's always a fight and a temptation to wanting to put a new twist on it or see it from a different angle. I'm going to tell you this real real fast. If you've grown up in the church, you're about to hear a sermon you've heard a hundred times. There's nothing new about this. Yet my hope and my prayer is that you are captivated by it. My hope and desire is that by hearing the word taught this morning, that there is a sweetness and a conviction that comes upon hearing the word taught. It goes for me too. I sit under this word. Every time the preacher gets up to preach, if he's a faithful teacher, he has sat underneath this, meditated on it, and been obliterated by it some days or uplifted by it in other days. And so this morning, the message that is taught is making a case for Christ. We're going to make a case for Christ, and it's not my case for Christ. It was the first sermon ever preached by any preacher in the church. It was the first sermon taught, and ever since that sermon, it has been replayed and retold, maybe in a a different way. It started at the end and went to the beginning, or started at the beginning or the middle. Everything's the same. It's the same gospel, and there's the same joy that comes out of it because that gospel is attached to the infinite personal creator, and there's great joy in recounting it. And just to set the stage, we are, we're in a series called Relentless, the church and the unstoppable mission of God. And it is unstoppable, but it's getting started. It's building momentum right now. And momentum is building, happened at Pentecost. Christ taught his disciples for, for 50-ish days, and then he left. And the church was left up in the upper room, gathered together 120 by themselves, wondering, when is the promise that Jesus said is coming? And then like a rush of wind filling and captivating the city, uh, the spirit descended upon the church like flame upon their head. They began to speak in the native languages of everyone who visited and was coming to celebrate the festival of Pentecost. As Pastor Jeff laid out the past couple weeks, it was an amazing experience. It was the gift that the Lord had promised. And now the world is getting a glimpse of who the church is. But more than that, Luke is actually recounting that God is at work. 
oftentimes the world reacts to the movement and the hand of God with uh, slander, sneering, and defaming what God is doing. Trying to point a picture and to create a reason as to why this amazing thing is happening. And to make sense of it. But Peter's going to stand up and address the church. And he's going to address you and I. He's going to convict us about who Christ is. And point us to the proclamation of the gospel. But to amaze us all that God's plan is under, uh, being undertaken and the outworking is taking place before our eyes, at the end of Acts chapter 2, or excuse me, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, Luke gives us this, uh, this interesting little narrative. And it says, look at all these languages that have been said and, and, and what are people hearing it in? Now you think, oh, that's just a random list of languages and, and places. You know, it's not random. Luke is doing something very specific. If you see the progression of languages, it starts in the east, it starts in Persia, and moves to Mesopotamia, and then to Cana, then Anatolia, then Egypt, and then on to the west. Well, if you look at that structure, and those languages, and those locations, if you jump back to Genesis chapter 10, to the passage called the, uh, the Table of Nations, it is the exact same progression. What's Luke doing? He is reinforcing that God is at work. When man tried to assail the ziggurat to lay claim of what God and who God is, God sent them out in confusion. He bent them back down, but instead of man returning up to God, it was God who then came to man. The eternal, then the high king of heaven came down on earth, lived a perfect sinless life, died in our place, rose again on the third day to proclaim salvation to those who are lost, and then ascended to God and seated at his right hand as the affirmation that he is accepted. And his message is vindicated. And that message is now being proclaimed to the nations. If you were in Jerusalem, the pandemonium and the chaos, the confusion, it it would be palpable. You would see it. You would feel it. You would be captivated by it. And so Luke stands and gives us this account of what Peter did in that moment. And what he did is proclaim the gospel. That God is restoring his image bearers under the banner and lordship of Christ. He is establishing Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. But what do the people see? They're shocked and perplexed and they're quickly dismissive. They say, these people must be drunk as a way to make an account for what's happening before them. But what about our day and age? Can we quickly identify that the Lord is at work? Or are we too accustomed to, like the crowds, point the finger that it's coincidences, it's guesses, it's mistakes, it isn't the powerful, provident hand of God at work in our lives? Are we too quickly jeering and sneering at the handiwork of God by attributing these events to other things other than Him? Certainly man plays a part, but God authors our days. The truth is this, God's sovereign hand continues to guide people to hear the good news of Jesus' resurrection and to profess him to be Lord and Messiah. That's my hope of sweet conviction for you today, that God's sovereign hand continues to guide people to hear his message of good news, that Jesus rose from the dead and now we need to profess him as Lord and Messiah. And it's been my prayer this week that your head and heart is ready to receive it again ready to receive God's message of salvation, a message that's 2,000 years old, but yet it's never grown dull in the heart of the church. Yes, we preach on the resurrection every Easter Sunday, but it ought to be every other Sunday we preach on the resurrection. It's the cornerstone of our faith. And so this morning, I pray that your heart is convicted both to proclaim the gospel and convicted 
of sin that I need to confess because I have crossed the gospel. And so is this a gospel you want to believe in? Is this a gospel you're desire to, to proclaim? Will you pray with me one more time before we jump into Luke, or Acts, excuse me. Our Lord and our God, we ask for a blessing to be upon this message. Father, we pray that you be the teacher this morning, that your spirit be the one who removes barriers and hardships, removes the scales from our eyes, that we can see, hear, and receive the true testimony that your Son is both Lord and Messiah. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open up with me to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and we're going to march through his sermon. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Luke gives us the account. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Peter stands up. This is the same Peter 50 days ago who denied Christ to an 11-year-old servant girl. And now he's standing up, gathering the attention of thousands. And I have to ask the question, what has changed? How does, a, how does 50 days go by when one can't stand up to an 11-year-old but is now willing to stand up to an entire city and to proclaim the good news of Jesus? It's simple and yet it's profound. He has seen the risen Lord and he's been filled with the Spirit. Those two things are powerful in anybody's life. To see and behold and experience the risen Lord and to be filled with the Spirit will transform you. It will undo that which is broken. It will reconstruct that which is uncertain. And by God's grace, we proclaim the good news to however many he puts in front of us. And so Peter charges this crowd. He gathers their attention together right on him. And he simply says, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. We wouldn't even have had our first meal yet, let alone be drinking alcohol. That is not the reason why this is taking place. But I will tell you why it is. It's prophecy being fulfilled. And so what does Peter do? In order to convince them to the authenticity of who Christ is, that they crucified the Messiah, that he was in their midst, yet they forgot about him and ignored him and crucified him, he preaches a sermon. He preaches an Old Testament exegetical sermon grounding the validity of Christ's message deep within God's own words and partners with it the new testimony of the church. And so where does he start? He gives us the first place that we should start in the fulfillment of prophecies that we live in the last days. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, first part of verse 17. He's recounting the, uh, the prophet Joel. And he says, And it will be in the last days, God said. So Peter intends for his audience to know that they are in the last days. If he can get them to know this, the rest falls in order. So we are still in God's end game. God's final act of salvation is taking place. And the evidence for Peter's claim that we are in the last days and Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled are the events of Pentecost and everything that follows after. As the gospel goes into the world, the results of what was prophesied are being fulfilled. And so let's look at Peter's claim. Let's see how he marches down. What does he say? The Spirit will reside on God's people. The second part of verse 17 and 18. I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my Spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. In the Old Testament, the only ones 
who would receive the Holy Spirit are kings, priests, prophets for a, a limited period of time on a limited group of people. But there was always a hope and an expectation that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on everyone. And as we looked at last week, the proclamation of all these languages is a sign that it's not just a small subset of a nation, just not just the Jews, but this pouring out of the Spirit is cross-cultural and transnational. It is for everyone. God is calling everyone to be a part of His new family. And what are they witnesses of? The Spirit has been poured out. Well, how do we know that? Because they're prophesying. Speaking in different languages is a form of prophecy. This is what's taking place before them. So he's calling them, yes, we are in the last days because look, you are witnesses. You can see this is not normal, but it is what you wanted. And so these group of 120, these simpletons by most uh, people's assumptions are followers of the way and they're speaking in languages they could not have known and proclaiming a gospel to a people that they would not have gone to on their own. But that's not the only sign in Joel's prophecy that is fulfilled. The next thing, the cosmic signs of the apocalypse. Verse 19, I will display wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Because Pentecost is only 50 days after the Passover, which is the day Christ was crucified, a portion of the pilgrims would have stayed in town to observe both festivals. If they were in the city the day Jesus died, they would have all witnessed the darkening of the sky, the shaking of the earth, and my personal favorite, dead people coming out of the tomb. <laughs> they would have all been witnesses to this. The commotion and the stories would continue to be told. And so what's Peter saying? You've seen these signs. You beheld them yourself. I'm not trying to convince you. You're the one who's still telling me about it. And there's more signs to come. They've witnessed a portion, a portion, but not the whole thing. And when you look at those phrases, um, blood, fire, darkness, a red moon, do you know what they are? Those are all ancient omens of impending war and doom and judgment. Something dreadful is coming, which gives us and points us to the next part of Joel's prophecy. The day of the Lord is coming. Last part of verse 20. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes, this will all take place. Just to give you some contextual understanding, Joel's prophecy falls within the context of plagues and locusts consuming Israel, to which Joel recognizes is a warning of God's impending judgment. The last days are here, but there will come a final day. There will be a consummation of this age. The day when God's judgment falls upon the earth and the destruction of his enemies vindicates his people. Now, if you're a Jew, you would already assume, uh, that, cool, I'm already on the good side. I was born on the good side. I don't have to do other, anything other than just breathe and eat and continue to live. But Peter is challenging that, just like Jesus was challenging that. Don't be so uh, confident because you were born into a specific family. You need to be reborn into my family. And so this is a prelude to his final point. Don't assume you will escape the, the day of the Lord and the wrath and his judgment to come. And so his final point is salvation from the Lord. Verse 21, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon God for salvation. Call upon his name and you will escape that coming judgment and wrath. 
Well, to them, that would have been totally fine because they would hear call upon the name of the Lord and think, Yahweh, I'm already born into that. I got it. I checked those boxes off. But I want to make you aware of that this point has a double meaning on purpose. Salvation from the Lord is both advocating salvation comes only from him and it's also escaping his wrath because of our sin. We are saved by God, from God, for God. And this is the proclamation he's putting before them. He's challenging, them, challenging their confidence that they are saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. Well, the best question to ask, well, whose name? What's the name of the Lord? And this is where Peter argues, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he was the promised Messiah. And so whose name do we call upon? And let's see if it is actually Jesus. And so in order for him to help them believe in Jesus, he has to unpack now why he was the Messiah. Because for all intents and purposes, they crucified him because he was not what they expected. So now he's going to recalibrate them to what they ought to expect. And so he reveals God's plan for the Messiah, the plan that was supposed to come all along. Look with me in Acts 2, verses 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to my words. He's setting up his case nightly. Nicely, he calls them all back. This is the second time he says, Israel, listen, you missed it, but I got to get you. So first he set up tongues, prove the spirit of prophecy has come, which then proves we live in the messianic era, which then proves that the Messiah has come. And Peter argues his name is Jesus. The man rejected by you, the man you killed and crucified. He has come and he's come in the name of the Lord. And so this is why Peter explicitly calls the nation to listen up so he can tune them up. They preferred their blindness, but Peter's about to restore their sight, revealing the plan of God that they denied. So he does so by clearly revealing God's plan of salvation. And what does he start with? He starts with the signs, wonders, and miracles that accompany Jesus in his life. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. You've heard these stories. In fact, you probably experienced some of these miracles and signs. Like last week's sermon, the sign is not the gift, but a testament to the gift. These signs, the nation of Israel received wholeheartedly. They loved it, enjoyed, but they rejected the gift. They didn't want who he was, what he proclaimed in his message. The sign is intended to authenticate it. But rather than receiving the actual gift of Jesus, they only received the sign. So think of John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. He does this amazing miracle. He feeds upwards of 10 to 12,000 people. They wanted to come make him king by force. He sends his disciples away. He goes up on the hills and pray, then meets them along the way. And I'm rhyming a ton, so I didn't intend for that, but it happened anyways. And he gets to the other side, and the next day, all the crowds catch up with him. And the religious leaders essentially say to him, if you're really the Messiah, prove it. Show us the manna. Show us the manna. Show us the bread. Well, I, I mean, they are blind because he just did it yesterday in some capacity. But that statement of show us the manna is proved to us who you say you are. And what does Jesus do instead? He says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's a harsh statement. That's harsh for us to hear. He's not saying it literally. He's saying it metaphorically. You must consume all of me. I am the sustenance for life. You can get life nowhere else but me. And then you get to John chapter 6, verse 66. This is the outcome of this interaction. And what does it say? And many left never to return. 
All they wanted was the sign. They didn't want the gift. God intended for them these signs to authenticate who he was, but they desired anything but who he was. And you know what they did because of that? They killed him. Jesus went to the cross. And so that was the next part of God's plan. It was death. Verse 23, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you, law, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. The death of Jesus would have been, for many, a confirmation that there was no way he could be the Messiah. That was unheard of. It's still unheard of to our day that we would believe in someone who would die, and that is our strength, because death is weakness. To a Jew and us to this day, it would be like hearing someone ordering deep-fried ice for dinner. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. What, they don't, they're incongruent. It doesn't make, what, why would you want that? And yet that was the plan. And we know that's the plan because the apostles in the early church commemorate and celebrate the death of Jesus. Where others would hide it and keep it away from sight because they're afraid of losing people, the church proclaims it and puts it on the pedestal to say, look, Christ died. And yet within this one verse, we are made aware of the perplexity and the paradox of our faith. That it's... On one hand, it's God's plan, and on the other hand, it's mankind's guilt. They're both true. It's the paradox of our faith between God's divine providence and human responsibility. One does not negate the other, but we do have difficulty holding the two in tension because they seem at odds. They seem like oil and vinegar. How can it be God's plan, and yet man is still responsible? How is it? Yet this is what God's revelation affirms and communicates to us. If you faithfully read the scriptures, it advocates and promotes both, like it's doing in this one verse. And so the compatibility comes from knowing why rather than how. We're really interested in knowing how it works, but the Lord is revealing to us why it works, why it is true. The Messiah's death is only weakness if God had not planned it. If it was unforeseen by God, unknown by God, then yes, it is a weakness because he is not all-knowing. He's not omniscient and all-powerful. But God did know it and he planned it. And if it were not our sin for the reason of his death, then then why would he need to die? If death were not required, then why do we believe? All of humanity is guilty for the death of Christ. As the scriptures tell us, all have sinned. You and I, everyone, excluding no one, has sinned through Adam. And although the people in Peter's audience were directly responsible for yelling, crucify him, crucify him, we all stand accused. We are all guilty of this. But Peter's primary point in saying this statement is that God's sovereignty overshadows the complexity of how it works with the reality that God is accomplishing his will. God is bringing to fruition what he wants, and that is to save. See, our sins require the just punishment of death, so God, out of his mercy and love, planned for Christ to be our substitutionary atonement. He traded places with us. This is why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. We don't hide it. We're not ashamed of it. It is, the corner, it is a cornerstone of what we believe. Because without it, the good news is not good. Without it, we are saved from nothing. His death is always a part of the plan. But thank God it wasn't the end of the plan. And this is why we celebrate his death. Because it was only the stepping stone 
to the resurrection. Verse 24, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Peter's description is intending to lead us to imagine death being in childbirth. And it can't hold on to Jesus. As a pregnant mother cannot hold to that baby forever, neither can the grave hold on to Christ. It was bound to happen because he's the eternal son of the Godhead. And so the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith and the hook upon which all our promises and expectations hang. Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ had not been raised, then our proclamation in vain, and so is your faith. And so we must ask ourselves, do we preach the resurrection? Do we think about the resurrection enough? Am I interested in talking about the resurrection with my friends, my family, with my church, brothers and sisters? Do I like talking about the resurrection? Out of the 22 verses Luke devotes to Peter's sermon, nine of them are on the resurrection. It's central to Peter's evangelism. Is it central to ours? I don't know if you're aware, but if you look throughout Scripture, time and time again, there's references to the realities of the Christian life that are directly tied to the resurrection. That if the resurrection did not happen, these things would not be true. I have a list of 20. I'm only going to give you six. And so some of them are the perfection of Jesus' obedience to the Father's will is true because of the resurrection. It's assurance that believers will not perish due to our sin. That is true because Jesus rose. It opens the way for Christ to send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers and for them into the church and into his body. That is true because of the resurrection. It's the motivation for spiritual living since believers are already seated with Christ in heaven and assured of being with him in glory. We can invest in being disciples because he knows it's fruitful. This will be our eternity. We might as well get started now. It establishes an unshakable foundation of our hope. If Christ rose, so will we. It's the guarantee of our future resurrection in life for believers. As he lives and as he enjoys, we will too. And the list goes on. It's the cornerstone of our faith. Yet I'm concerned, I think, sharing the gospel, this is my greatest concern, is that we are trying, when we share the gospel, we're trying to connect people to Jesus so he can meet their shared and felt needs. That's my concern that we preach that gospel, that Jesus can meet your felt needs. It's my concern because that's not Peter's intent. That's not what's important to Peter. What Luke records and what Peter presents is belief in Jesus is based upon who he is way before it's what he can do for us. He's Messiah and Lord. So we have to ask ourselves, are we convinced of the resurrection accounts? Are we convinced enough to testify about them to the world around us? Or are we uncertain and unsure? Do we proclaim, hey, Jesus is alive? I know we do it in worship. Do we do it amongst ourselves? Or are we uncertain? It's not for a lack of evidence, though. We have extensive evidence for the resurrection. If you're wavering on whether you believe in the resurrection, that he literally rose from the grave then I encourage you to go back in our sermon on the standalone series. Jeff gave a whole message devoted to this one subject called Why We Believe in Jesus' Resurrection. He gave five awesome points and elaborates on them. I'm just going to give you the points, but I would encourage you to see how he elaborated on each one of them. 
because it is the cornerstone of our faith. Without our ability to describe the resurrection, what are we offering people to be saved to? Sure, we preach Christ crucified, but so what if he didn't raise? So the first point in helping us to understand and grow, um, to put our nails into the resurrection with certainty is the reluctance of the Jews to believe in a crucified Messiah. The church didn't make this up because no one would make it up. It could only come from the Lord because only he could make it a strength and not a weakness. Next is the initial eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Every book of the Bible is its own separate book. That's why we call them books. And each book is its own account of the things that happen. So we have four gospels. We have four separate accounts of the life and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Each one counts as a different source for the material of what happened in the past. We combine them all into one big book, but make no doubt historians and those who look at history through a critical lens will know each account is a different, different and separate account, each testifying to the same thing uniquely, but not competing with each other. And so what do you do? The early eyewitness accounts of the tomb, there are hundreds of people who have testified that Jesus rose from the grave, namely Peter in the 120 plus 500 more plus Paul on the road to Damascus. What do we do with that? other than to see the signs that it's probably true. Success of the early church. Every movement whose leader was taken away, killed, and executed, gruesomely, publicly, all diminished. Look throughout history. What movement gained momentum through someone's death? Apart from the church and its success in the early days when it was persecuted beyond any persecution the church has known since. Next, the early church creeds. This is a doctrine from the beginning. It wasn't something adopted that was old. From the very onset in the beginning, as we're reading in Peter's sermon, they testify to the resurrection of Christ. And last, no good competing explanations. So with the accounts that the tomb was empty and what people saw, they try to create reasons. What did they see? Some say it's hallucinations. Well, historical accounts of hallucinations say it's really two to three people see the same thing, not hundreds over different places and spaces and different times see the same account and testify it separately. Or like John Dominic Crossan says, dogs ate Jesus' body. That's why we don't have it. Cool, whatever. If that's the way you want to go. As for Peter and and his audience, how does he convince them of the resurrection? He points them back to their, their their king and patriarch, David. For David says of him, look in verse 25, I saw the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me and you will fill me with gladness in your presence. People often thought David was speaking about himself. But Jesus, I mean, um, Peter argues that David wasn't speaking about himself, and it's actually quite comical. All he says is, because David's dead. Look at verse 29, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. This was all part of God's plan. Yes, he would experience death, but he would raise to glorious life. Brothers and sisters, this couldn't have been about David. He's dead. We know his tomb. We visit it. We send field trips to it. 
But nonetheless, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so Peter testifies to the, Christ's authenticity and places before his audience a decision to believe in Jesus for exactly who he is. Not who they want him to be. And this is the condition he places before us. That Jesus Christ is both Lord and Messiah. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. The early church didn't need the evidence that we just shared because they were the evidence of the resurrection. They saw it. They testified to it. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the church is the early witnesses. But by their very experience of sitting there, the crowd and their mere presence, watching, questioning, and wondering what was taking place around them, they have become witnesses to the outpouring of the Spirit, which is proof that Jesus the Messiah has ascended to be with God, bringing the world into the last days, into the final act before His judgment, awaiting the high King of Heaven's return. But remember, they put Him on the cross. And so we have a responsibility And he focuses their attention down to a single decision. In his conclusion, he writes, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter didn't skirt the issue of personal responsibility. Like them, we are guilty of falling short of God's good will and character. We have all sinned and crucified Christ. We must also remember, though, that Joel prophesied, if we but call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And his name is Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, this is our message to repeat. This message that Peter proclaimed is the same message that has been happening 2,000 years in the life of the church. There's nothing new to this story. But it is new to me every day. As I recount it and recall it, God's goodness to me is that he sent his son. And I know him. Peter and Jesus in this moment, in testifying, aren't worried about the reaction of the crowd because they love and long for their reaction to accept Christ. It's worth standing up before thousands and testifying that Christ is Lord and Messiah. And when he does that, they're cut to the heart, it says. Why? Because they no longer affirm that they stand on the right side of God. They stand against him. They're his enemies. And he, what does he say at this? I will you sit my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so they, how do I not be an enemy? They're cut to the heart. What have we done? What have we missed? What do we do, Peter? And Peter speaks to them. He summons them to repentance and to receive. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Each one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance means to turn and walk in another direction and to continue in that direction, not to look back, not to return. So repentance is not a warming of the feelings. It's not a shedding of tears. Although it has those things, that's not the primary point of repentance. It is a complete acknowledgement that we cannot save ourselves and day by day we consume Jesus' grace and guidance. That is repentance. 
As Dallas Willard said, a Christian consumes grace like a 747 consumes fuel on takeoff. Every day we are nourished by the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. This isn't a one-time moment. This is a lifelong pursuit. That's repentance. And we must affirm him as both Lord and Savior. As Lord, Jesus demands the repentance and, and baptism, which are, which are outward expressions of allegiance to him because he is the high king of heaven. He doesn't have to earn our repentance because he's the high king of heaven. But as Messiah, he offers us unmerited gift of grace in forgiveness. In turning from sin and to Jesus, there can be no separation of his lordship and his role as savior. By believing in him as he is, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, our guarantee of life in the kingdom. This is not a new message, is it? And so why do we get into times and places where we drift from the message of who Christ is and what he offers? Well, I pray that we rein in that drift today. That the sweetness of our conviction is to call upon Christ and to affirm as Lord and Savior of our life. And so to start with each one of us in your day, there are two groups in here. There are those who do not profess faith in Christ, who have yet to receive. And what Paul says and what the scriptures advocate, today is the day of salvation. But I must ask a question, and this is not to accuse or point a finger. This is out of curiosity. What further evidence do you need to believe beyond what you've already heard? Like was preached last week, this is the best place in order to receive the guidance and hope of what is possible through Jesus, the church. But have you thought about what other evidence do you need in order to believe? What would be a sufficient amount? I think that's a good conversation to have. Brothers and sisters, if you know people in your life, that's a great question to ask. What evidence do you need? Change it, manipulate it, turn it around to make it conducive to a relationship and a conversation, but certainly just investigate where are people at. But to those of us who do believe in here, we must affirm that there's no other gospel. What Peter proclaimed, we repeat. The elements of his sermon, the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament until today, the plan of God, the, the signs attributed to Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and the person of Christ, who he is, that is the essence of the gospel. We preach and proclaim that the good news is that, the, that Jesus is the proclamation that the high king of heaven was sent into earth, lived a perfect life for you and I, died on a cross, but rose on the third day and ascended to be with God in heaven. And we are called to either believe or not. In a very simple way, that is the gospel. And there is no other one. But last and not least, I want to affirm each and every one of us in here. We're not perfect, but we are worthy of this gospel. We're entrusted with the gospel. We've been given it to preach and to proclaim, to live. And I believe the most complete form of worship that you or I could ever engage in is sharing our joy in the Lord and his message and good news of Jesus to those who don't know it. One of the best advice I was given uh, in premarital counseling with Kelsey was, as often as you can, retell this the way you fell in love. Why? So that we relive it. 
We experience it again and again. That advice rings true to us as faithful followers of Christ. The more we tell and communicate how we came to love and know and accept Jesus, the more we relive it and re-enjoy it. We are reminded in those moments that we are not worthy, uh, that we are guilty and that we're not perfect, but we are affirmed that we are worthy because he has called us. It's from God to God. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that we can relive it right now as we take communion together. Communion is something that's important. It's what the Lord has ordained for the church to continue to administer as a way to remember the gospel again and again and again. 